So could anyone else uh, sympathize with, um, with Yuki's prayer of, of um, supplication when, when Rick asked uh, if there was anything else that softly offer? Yes, I could definitely sympathize with them. Um, so uh, we're continuing our series in Romans. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 13. get new glasses this week so I could see you all better. That's pretty cool. The guys at work called them birth control glasses. I don't know. You know what? I, th- I thought of that myself, actually. That, that's kind of cool. Anyway, um, <laughs> Romans 13, chapter, uh, verse 11. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery or licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, we had leftovers uh, on Tuesday night. And nothing wrong with leftovers. I love leftovers. The food the first time around was great, and it was great the second time around. The problem is that when we have leftovers, oftentimes, you know, we have various different kinds of leftovers, and I like to have a little bit of everything, you know. So I had, like, um, meatloaf, which was great. And then there was also this, like, kielbasa that was in there. So I had a little bit of that. Um, and then, hours later, a little bit of transparency here. Um, I do not like to go to bed without a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't like to do it. Occasionally I have to do it, but it's just not, there's just a fix that I got to have, that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I do it almost every night, regardless of what I had for dinner around 6 o'clock. So well, usually around 11 o'clock, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I go, you know, I fell asleep watching The Blacklist or something, and I go into the, the kitchen, and I go to get it, and oh, it's no bread. No bread. So what am I going to do? Well, I'll probably go to get cereal. Um, but, you know, that's probably the second, that's the go-to. But you know what? Um, I still need that peanut butter fix. So, I, like, you know, I had a, a, a knife full of peanut butter. So then I had that, and then I had uh, cereal, but there wasn't enough cereal for a whole bowl. But there was enough corn checks and enough special cake, because I like to stay healthy, um, that, that I could pour them together you know, and have a whole bowl. And that was fine, that was good, yeah, it was good. And then I'm on my way back to the bed, you know, it's bedtime now, and of course I saw the Halloween candy, and I had a Kit Kat. So then you get this meatloaf, kielbasa, peanut butter, um, cereal, Kit Kat jambalaya, and around 1.30 in the morning, I had a stomachache. <laughs> Needed to get up and get some Tums. So. This reminded me of, of something my friend Chris reminded me of. He said, like, it was a comedian that said, you know, when you wake up 
at 1.30 in the morning and you need to go to the bathroom or going to go do something, um, your, your, your body parts start like talking to each other and it's like your head might say, I've been in this room before. I know how to get from this bed to that bathroom, no problem. I've gotten into this bed with the lights on. There's no reason I need to do it without, you know, to get to the bathroom. I, I can figure it out. My, that's what my head is saying. Your foot, however, is saying, put the light on. <laughs> I did not listen to my foot. I listened to my stupid head. And I tried to work my way around to the bathroom and trip over this laundry basket that must have been filled with razor blades in it or something <laughs> because I sliced my foot open you know, and there's blood, and I got a stomach ache, and I'm thinking about today's text, and I'm thinking, oh, thank you for the sermon illustration, Lord. <laughs> Paul is, uh, he's continuing his words on what exactly it means for Christians to be a part of this world. He talked in chapter 12 about the responsibilities that we have. Um, uh, to friends, the responsibilities that we have to enemies. And now, in chapter 13, he's going to talk about the kind of ultimate authority that comes from God, not from men. We are to be subject to governing authorities because, you know, who are we kidding? All of those authorities ultimately come from God. There is, unfortunately, this kind of plenty of bad theology out there that says... Um, that suggests that God is regulated to certain places at certain times, and it might be easy for us as Christians to kind of knock that down. Someone might say, well, you know, God lives at the church, doesn't he? And we might quickly respond, no, 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 no. God, God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. He's all-present at all times in his fullness. He's not just at the church. God's with me when I wake up in the morning. He's with me when I go to work. He's with me when I'm with my family. God is with me at all times. The challenge for me, speaking for myself, is that um, these words can come easily out of my mouth, but actually living them in a way that lives up to Paul's words is quite a different story. Have you ever considered how much safety there is in the dark? I mean, sure, I, I might stumble around, this and that, but what would you expect? I was in the dark. It was the middle of the night. I'm supposed to trip over that laundry basket because that's what you do in the dark. The world and everything around us may seem to be saying that it's still nighttime. As long as I have the nighttime excuse, it's okay if I stumble around things in the room. But, but no, Paul is saying, the night, the night is far gone. It's over and early morning is upon us. It's time to get up. It's time to get a cup of coffee. It's time to get about the business of what he's called us to do and do so in a way that sees those things that were stumbling blocks in the dark for what they really are. Maybe they're trials which build up our patience and our character. Maybe they're relational challenges that give us an opportunity for reconciliation. Maybe it's that sin that's been eating away at you. It's a huge stumbling block because you've convinced yourself that you're living in the dark. And it's the best way to live life. You continue to stumble over it. It's that conversation with yourself again, isn't it? 
or, or maybe it's a conversation with something else. The time has come for you to see this is not simply as a common stumbling block that exists because, hey, the world's dark after all. Your head may be stubbornly saying, I've been through this before. I can navigate my own self around this room. I know my way around this situation. But here is the proper way to handle these things. This is how I usually respond to anger. Or this is how I usually respond to lust or envy. How many times do you need to stumble over that thing in the dark before you put on the light? Last night, I had uh, the privilege of marrying uh, Keith and Emily Hickox, which was uh, very nice. It was down at the Ruth Chris Steakhouse down at, uh, at Pikesville, um, down in Pikesville. Uh, beautiful, beautiful room. Um, it was a great wedding. Uh, it was just small. It was with their families. Um, very intimate and very uh, just a precious time of, um, of these families getting together. And one of the things I reminded them of during the, the homily of the sermon or the, um, the ceremony is I reminded them that we are not defined by our past. We are defined by our future I reminded them that, in a way, they've both died. They've died to their individual goals and their individual hopes, their individual dreams, because they've committed them to each other. In the darkness, it would be easy for them to go into this assuming that their own selfish needs and desires would be the most important aspects of their life. That selfishness might even contribute to some people's desire and to get married in the first place. That is, if the idol of being married was the prime objective. See, there's this idea of saturating so much of the Bible that together we're more than the sum of our parts. When we work with another human being, when we either, um, we either, when we work with a human being, we either have the option of working next to them or working with them. See, working next to somebody might be okay, but it could also lead to unhealthy competition and unhealthy comparisons that will only leave us tooting our own horn. But if I'm living in the dark, if I'm living in the dark, then it would be easy for me to make that choice as to how I navigate through a thing like marriage. That's the easy way out because it places the individual as paramount to their situation. But when we do the hard work of laboring with another, our chances of victory seem to grow exponentially. Rather than competition and comparison, it's about complementing each other, completing each other. That's what true community is about. That's what marriage is about. That's what love in a room filled with light looks like. So much of this for Paul is about living with the hope that this ship is headed somewhere. For Christians, our hope, or our future hope, isn't an abstract kind of pie-in-the-sky thought that one day it might get all better, that God will eventually remove the stumbling blocks whether we've put the light switch on or not. No, it's about knowing the hope we have in Christ and living that way now. We already belong to God's future. The future is breaking into the present in a way that reconciles the past, that's the cross, and gives you the freedom to experience life in the light. That's the resurrection. Check out Philippians 3. 
starting in verse 20. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, brothers and sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, my crown, my joy, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Paul here says that our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven one day when it all gets sorted out by God. He says that today our citizenship is in heaven. So that's the now. But then there's also this not yet, because he's saying that we're expecting Jesus. And when he comes, he's going to transform the sinful pile of sin that is me and conform it to the body of his glory. That's encouraging. Now, again, if I look at this... um, Sorry, I lost my place. (laughs) Where was I? Sorry, this is horrible. Uh, Anyway... um, if I look at this not as an abstract thought, but as a present reality, then I'll need to make arrangements in the light on that expectation. I came across this metaphor in a commentary. Imagine you're expecting somebody for dinner. What do you do? You plan a meal, you buy groceries, you set the table, you cook food, because I'm not just thinking that this person might show up. It might be possible that this, guy, this person might show up. I'm expecting that they'll show up, and when they do, I should probably act like I knew they were coming. I think sometimes I act like Jesus might stop by for a visit now and then. No, I should be expecting him, and I'm ordering my life to that end and no other. Um, again and again, I, I, as I read, um, especially uh, people like N.T. Wright on this kind of topic, he talks about um, inaugurated eschatology. Um, it, it's a heavy word, but he, he says it means the future remains future, but its power has burst into the present. And Messiah people must learn the way of life that belongs to the future and practice it even amidst the puzzles that continue. You see, it's not enough to just get up. We have to get dressed. As Paul says, we have to put on the armor of light. That's an interesting term because it's kind of like battle language. It implies that some things aren't going to go your way. Armor is a defensive measure. Something is going to attack me, and I need to make sure that I'm able to put up a proper defense or at least tap into the source that will provide me with a proper defense. Here, though, in the text, Paul seems to be saying that the way we best guard ourselves is by seeing things as they really are. And you think about the specific sins, I'm reading from the NRSV, but the specific sins mentioned by Paul in our Romans passage. He kind of goes through this little thesaurus of sin. That was a possible name for the sermon title. But um, He talks about reveling you know, take advantage, uh, to take great pleasure or delight, or maybe like wild parties. He talks about drunkenness, you know, overindulgence in alcohol to the point of intoxication. Um, So let's say 
I'm stumbling around the room because of exhaustion, because of a need for recreation. There's nothing wrong with taking a time of rest for time, for joy, for fun, right? The, the problem is that when I walk around in the dark and perhaps even do what seems natural, I stumble into things like reveling. I stumble into things like drunkenness. These things have their roots in some rather good feelings and desires. I work for a time, and then I need to unwind. If I run at high speeds, and I don't stop, and I don't tear, uh, take care of myself, I'll burn out. So it's good to want to have some fun, but then it's that internal conversation. It's, oh, 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 oh I know what to do. I know the proper way to uh, respond, uh, the proper way to unwind. I know the proper way to walk around in the dark, and then I stumble. I stumble over these wild parties. I stumble over drunkenness. I make bad choices. But I work around a lot of college students, um, and I clearly get to see that there's this correlation between living a high-stress life of school during the week, and then oftentimes, too often, there's a response to that stress with parties and intoxication. And what ends up happening is that sort of behavior is a drain um, on the body as well. And when we put on the armor of light, I look for those things that recharge my batteries. And I get uh, the things that are going to ultimately get me back to work. And this will be difficult at times. Or, or look at two other words that Paul mentions. He mentions debauchery, uh, like excessive indulgence in sexual pleasures or orgies, and licentiousness. Licentiousness, that's a serious thing. I mean, I, I didn't know what it means before I looked it up. But like that, that just sounds like a Jonathan Edwards sin. You know, licentiousness. That's a, that's a southern sin. You know, unrestrained by general morality, especially in regards to sexuality. So let's say I'm stumbling around the room because of sexual desire. There's nothing wrong with sexual desire. God revolved an entire book of the Bible around it. We preached a whole sermon series on it. The problem is that when I walk around in the dark and perhaps do what seems natural, I stumble. I stumble into things like debauchery and licentiousness, sexual immorality. These things, however, have their roots in very good feelings and desires. Oh, I say, I know how to respond to such desires. The easy way out is lust. The easy way out is objectification. The easy way out is operating my sexuality in a way that pleases me and not necessarily my wife. Paul reminds us that love is the proper response. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. When I put on the armor of light, I see that that sexual energy needs to point in one direction, my marriage. This will be difficult at times. Two more words. Quarreling, anger, disputes, altercations, a bad disagreement marked by a temporary or permanent break in friendly relations, bad tempers, or jealousy, feelings of resentment because of another's successes or advantages. Now, let's say I'm now stumbling across the room because of anger. And there's nothing wrong with anger. Read the newspaper. We have a lot to be angry about. We live in the year 2014. The 21st century provides us with seemingly limitless information that is literally at our fingertips. 
yet humanity finds, still finds new and innovative ways of hurting each other. It's inevitable that when we experience people hurting us and even persecuting us, we'll be angry. The problem is that when someone hurts me, the darkness tells me that the best way to respond to that anger is through quarreling, angry disputes or accusations or generalizations. If someone has experienced joy, I might unjustifiably take my anger and then turn those feelings into resentment, turn those feelings into jealousy. No, Paul says, we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When I put on the armor of light, my response to things that get me angry now might be solidarity, reconciliation, and service. You see, when we trust the world, the world has some wisdom in it, doesn't it? There's, there's some things that if you listen to, you know, this worldly philosophy, they, they figure some things out. But the problem is that the world does a great job of explaining the dark rather than actually living in the light. Um, we, uh, we started up our, our, our history club recently again, um, and... We're starting in this uh, time period after the War of 1812 um, and kind of this 30-year section. Um, In the decades that followed, 1815, after the War of 1812, there would be greater strides in the improvement of communication than had taken place in all previous centuries. So in May uh, May 24, 1844, uh, Professor Samuel F. B. Moore, sitting in chambers of the United States Supreme Court, tapped out a message on a device of cogs and coiled wires. He wrote, What hath God wrought? Forty miles away in Baltimore, Morse's assistant received the message and sent it back. In this move, the limits of communication broke down in that moment. No one from Alexander the Great to Benjamin Franklin knew anything faster than a galloping horse. Now there was instant, long-distance communication. After the 18th century, see, there were these ideas of a scientific revolution. And after that, there began to, these ideas began to spread wildly and gave way to this major cultural movement known as the Enlightenment. So philosophers like Immanuel Kant proposed this idea that all that is required for enlightenment is freedom, and particularly the freedom for man to make public use of his reason in all matters. You see, humanity gets out of bed because of education, because of literature, because of science, because of philosophy and psychology and artistic expression and technological advancements. Those things are good things. They come from a God who loves you. It's good for man to make public use of his reason in all matters, but when we forget to ask, what hath God wrought? What have God wrought? And in our own stupidity, we lie to ourselves and take him out of the equation. We're going to stumble over those things, those science and all that stuff that we hold so dear. We're going to stumble across that in the dark. See, we're not just putting on the light. We're putting on a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, that's a relationship. It's marked by grace, but it's also marked by discipleship. Conforming to the image of this world is the easy way out 
And it often seems natural. Renewing our minds, putting on the armor of light, the armor of Christ, it's going to feel like it's going against the grain. But it's so worth it. Do you ever, um, well, if you saw the cover of the bulletin, uh, does anybody know what movies that's from? Wow, that's pretty good. It's from the movie National Treasure, where you know, they go through this entire movie and um, follow all these different clues, and they think they come across this dark room, and they're not so sure that they hit the right one, but then you know, Nicolas Cage grabs the torch, and he puts it into this thing that just lights this fire all around that room, like on the cover of your bulletin, and all of a sudden, they see that what they thought might have been this, another dark room, another dark room of obstacles, another, another block in their success story. Suddenly, they've, they've arrived, and they're seeing all of these gifts, all of this huge amount, this whole room of treasures. See, when we put on the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to not simply see the obstacles in the darkness. We also see the abundant gifts with which our Father has blessed us. And if that looks like heaven, good. Because that's what it is. This will be difficult. Let's pray. Father, as long as the rivers flow, as long as the wind blows, my heart belongs to you. As long as the seasons change, as long as the farmer needs the rain, my heart belongs to you. Lord, I know I, I don't deserve the grace you give, but I will give my heart to you that I might live. You are my God. Early in the morning will I rise to meet you. Rise to meet you. You are my Lord. Early in the morning will I rise to meet you. Rise to meet you. My heart belongs to you. Father, let this word, these words be our own. Be with us as we struggle to think of the ways to wake up. The ways that... Um, you show us the light that is before us. That even when we turn on that light, we see the obstacles and we see the gifts, but we also see the challenges because this will not be easy. Thank you that you are our constant companion. Thank you that you have filled our lives with your Holy Spirit. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.